All right, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're in a series entitled United Together in the Gospel, and we're studying what it looks like for a people of God to be united in the gospel of Jesus Christ for God's kingdom mission. Last week, we looked at what we called true liberty And that we were free to sacrifice our freedoms for the sake of God's mission. Well, today we're going to build on that. And we're going to see in the second part of true liberty that we are free to pursue a greater reward. Let me give you a little background and that will, I think, help bridge last Sunday to this Sunday. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8... Paul addresses a situation that was arising in the Corinthian church about some things that they weren't sure whether they should participate or not. And for us, we might kind of laugh at it, but for them it was a very serious issue and it was causing a significant division in the church. And Paul said this, look, you are free to eat the meat that you want, but if you eat that meat and it causes your brother or sister to stumble, then I want to encourage you not to eat of that meat because Christians would never do anything that caused a brother or sister to falter or to disbelieve in God. And so today, he's going to take this idea that we're free to sacrifice our freedoms and he's going to build on it to include and and really enlarge it to include not only the freedoms that we have, but the rights that we have in Christ as well. Let's go to chapter 9 and verse 1, and let's begin to see what Paul says. He says this, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Listen, what Paul does is this continuing conversation that he's having with the church at Corinth is he's validating his pastoral or apostolic authority in the church not to rule over them, but to simply say, I want you to listen to what I'm teaching you because it's from the Lord. But there were many people in the church who just disregarded Paul. They didn't like him. They had disagreements or they wanted to be greater than he was. And so they felt competition from him. And Paul was saying, listen, I want you to hear what God is saying because God has appeared to me. And as an apostle, one who has seen Jesus after his resurrection, this word has come to me from the Lord. And in chapter 8, he said this, that, that freedoms of Christian liberty never rule us as Lord, but they serve to help and to enable us to serve the Lord. And so today, as he enlarges our understanding of this, and we build off of this, I want you to see that Christians can sacrifice rights of liberty to serve for a greater reward in faithful witness. Now, I don't want to lose you here, so I'm going to occasionally take some time just to stop and try to explain some of the terminology that I'm using today. You see, friends, the greatest glory for our lives is not found in the indulgence of Christian liberties for our personal enjoyment or for our personal pleasure. Now, I'm not saying there's no pleasure or enjoyment in those. Actually, there's much 
God gives us good gifts for us to enjoy. And he sets us free in Christ so that we're not bound by the legalisms and the rituals of dead religion, but rather so that we can worship him. And one of the ways we worship him is through enjoying the things that he gives to us. But that's not our greatest glory in the Christian life. And what Paul's going to compel us to consider today is that the greater glory is one's willingness to give up our freedoms and even our rights for a greater reward of making Christ known to those who have not heard of him yet. And so that's why he begins the chapter in the way that he begins. He says this, look, I'm not arguing with you about something you're not aware of. You know who I am and you've seen me from the beginning and this is my new identity in Christ. We know that Paul was the greatest persecutor of people who followed Jesus in the New Testament. And he was on his way with papers in his pocket. That's called caught red-handed. Because he was going to have Christians arrested, persecuted, beaten, and many of them killed. Paul was one of the singular people who caused the greatest chaos and persecution against Christians in the first century, more so than any other. So much so that when he got saved, placed his faith in Jesus, the scriptures tell us that Christians, all of them enjoyed peace because Paul had been converted. That's quite an influence, don't you think? Not necessarily one that you should try to repeat, nor that we would recommend. But he was significant in his influence. And so on his way to Damascus, with the intent to arrest and persecute more Christians, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him, blinded him, put him on his face on the road, such that Paul, who did not have a personal relationship with Jesus, responded in the only way that he could respond. And he said, Lord, whoever can do this to me, deserves no other name than Lord. And Jesus spoke to him personally and said, Why are you persecuting me? For I have a greater purpose for your life. And we know from that time on, who, the man who was known as Saul began a transformation of his life and he would become known as Paul and become one of the greatest, if not the greatest, apostle in the New Testament, would write more of what we record as the New Testament today than any other writer. And so what Paul is saying is this. He says, am I not an apostle? He's establishing their understanding and reminding them of who he is in Christ. And he also goes on to define Christian liberty as not only freedoms, in other words, the things that we've been set free to enjoy, that that we're not bound by idolatrous rituals anymore or pagan rituals in the sense that they were struggling with them and arguing over them. But he says we've been set free. And, And because we're free, we are free to enjoy. But there's a greater purpose for our freedom. There's not only a greater purpose for our freedom, there's a greater purpose even for our rights, the things that we are authorized. And when he uses this term rights in chapter 9, he uses the same word that he uses in chapter 8, but he uses it in a new way that expands our understanding. 
You see, he uses it not just as a freedom, but as a right in the sense of something that is due or owed to him. And we'll see that a little more in just a moment. But the sacrifice of Christian liberties for the sake of mission, this is what I want you to see now as we walk into Paul's message. It includes not only our freedoms in Christ, but also our rights because of Christ. We'll see this. Verses 8 through 12, he establishes his argument by saying this. He says, you know, from a human perspective, no one goes to the shepherd and go, hey, why do you enjoy the milk of your flock? Why? But a shepherd would feed himself, would would actually enjoy some of the produce of his flock. Why would anyone go to a farmer and go, hey, that's your crop, you can't have any of that. Paul goes, no, we fully expect that a farmer, that a shepherd, that even a warrior wouldn't have to pay for the war himself, but would be compensated for his fighting in battle. And so he establishes that his labors, that are spiritual labors, are rightfully due to be compensated with material provisions. And he does it from a human perspective. We understand that you give a day of work, you receive a day of wage. However, it seems now that there are some who want to not give a day of work and still receive a day of wage. It's called the millennial generation. I'm just kidding, just kidding, joking, joking. They inherited their grandfather's boots, but not his work ethic. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just joking. That's like I totally ripped that joke off right there. That's not even my joke. But it made you laugh, and so I will continue to do that. I'll find them wherever I can. My point is this. That none of them would question compensating a farmer, a warrior, a shepherd. But some of them were say Paul wasn't worth his due. He didn't deserve to be compensated for the labors. And he was establishing that it is actually a right because of Christ. And he also says, not only from human authority, but God's authority. In Deuteronomy 25, 4, it says, Do not muzzle the ox while he is treading out the grain. And he said, God didn't give us that in the law because he was so worried about the beast. But he said, if you care for a beast in that way, how much more should you care for people? in compensating them fairly for the work that they do. So he's saying that human authority and God's authority agree in the argument that he is setting forth. And in so setting forth, he has a rightful claim to expect that he can accept material provision for spiritual labor. Now I know what some of you are feeling right now. You're probably feeling like the Corinthians did. Is he about to take an offering to pad his pockets? No, Paul is not creating a justification for paying ministers or pastors. Rather, he's assuming it and he's springing forth from that. It's the same argument that he makes throughout Scripture for why you should compensate a pastor. But rather, he's saying, that's the foundation that I am saying. But then he comes to verse 12, and I want you to go there with me. Verse 12 Verse 11, he says, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim, that's where the word rights 
Exousia, authority. That's what he says there. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, this is where he turns his argument. We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. You see, friends, this is where Paul is enlarging our understanding of Christian liberties. To not only include freedoms, but also to to include rights. The things that we enjoy now, but also the things that we are owed. And what Paul is going to say is that we didn't demand what we were rightfully owed because we would endure anything so that nothing would get in the way of the effectiveness of preaching the gospel. Freedoms, friends, and rights of Christian liberty should always serve God's greater glory and God's greater purpose for our lives. You see, in Christian liberty, both freedoms, those things that we are free to partake in, and rights, or those things that are lawfully and rightfully due to us, should never be allowed to become a stumbling block for the gospel. That's what Paul is purporting here. For faithfulness in Christian witness and in service to gospel mission promise a greater reward than even the liberties of enjoying our freedoms and rights in Christ. And so we come to verse 15 where we're going to drill down and focus today. And here's what he says. I have made no use of any of these rights nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Let's pause there for just a moment. But, he says, I have not exercised my right. A right that God's word establishes is my right. A right that human authority has said. It's my right. Rather, I would put nothing in the way of people hearing the gospel preached and receiving by faith Jesus as Savior and Lord. He's completely justified in right compensation for preaching the gospel, but he gladly gives up his compensation for what is greater. Let me ask you this. What is greater? What is greater than the enjoyment of God's freedoms that He's given to us? What is greater than receiving the provision of our life for the rights that we have in Christ? Well, Paul's argument in the first 14 verses brings us to the central point of our sermon for today. And it's simply this, that Christians sacrifice rights of liberty to serve for a greater reward in faithful witness. A greater reward awaits us in Christ Jesus. I want us to see in the remainder of this chapter three facets that will help us pursue God's greater reward as a faithful witness. And the first one we see is the motivation for this faithful witness in verses 15 through 18. The motivation for our great reward, our faithful Witness. Paul wanted nothing to distract from the gospel. 
And he says this, he says, I I wouldn't do anything that removed my ground for boasting. And that term ground for boasting is not one about, shall we say, exerting his ego, but rather testifying to God's provision and God's goodness that is greater than anything we could have in the earth. He says this, that he couldn't boast in his preaching, not because he was a bad preacher, though many of the Corinthians argued that very point. Well, you can't preach anyway. But rather, he would not boast in his preaching because he refused compensation because even if he didn't get paid for his preaching, which he didn't, he still lived under a divine compulsion to preach. So much so that he said, woe to me if I don't preach. In other words, it is a curse on my life if I fail to preach the gospel. And listen, friends, if you read the New Testament from cover to cover, you will find this, that Paul is right about what he said. There wasn't anything in his life that could stop him from preaching. Time after time, he received 39 lashes because the people didn't like what they heard from him. And they pressed charges against him to the Roman authorities and had him whipped and beaten. When the crowds didn't like what they heard from him, they began to stone him in riotous actions and they began to leave him for dead Time and time again, he was done this. But Paul wouldn't stop preaching. When Paul came to a place and to a people who had beat him and left him for dead, he stood up and preached. When he stood before a city and they were shouting to kill him and they were pressing against the guards that were trying to protect him, Paul said, hey, before we leave, can I just say something to them? And the guards are like, are you kidding me? They want to kill you. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. They can kill me in a minute, but first I need to preach. When they left him for He didn't get up from the hole and the buried under the rocks that they left him in and leave. He went back into the city. Listen, he didn't let the idols of a bad culture get him down. If he had, Acts 17 never would have happened. And Paul never would have stood up in Ephesus and said, look, you're a bunch of religious people, but all your religion has damned you to hell unless you know the one who can bring you into the presence of God himself. So listen, when Paul says, I'm under compulsion, his whole life demonstrated the compulsion. Paul said this, that he couldn't boast in his preaching because it was nothing more than a faithful exercise of his gift. See, some of them said, we like Apollos better than you, Paul. He speaks with a better fluency. He sounds more intelligent. You sound like an ignoramus. I'll let you look that word up later. It's an Arkansas lingo for idiot. And stupid thrown in there as well. They didn't like Paul. And Paul said, look, I I can't even boast at my gift of preaching. I'm not even sure I have one sometimes. But even if I can't boast in it, I still have a stewardship. Because God put his call upon my life and entrusted to me the call To preach and that I must do. I can do no other. God's call, friend, consumed Paul. Regardless of the company that he kept, the city that he entered, the culture that he encountered, or the cost that he incurred. And the call of God upon the Christian's life should consume our life with the same focus and direction. Not to emulate everything Paul did, 
but to do as Christ has saved and redeemed us and called us and leads us to do in our life. And so he asked the question, what then is my reward? What is worthy of what I'm enduring? What is worthy of not ceasing but continuing faithfulness in what God has called me to do? What motivated Paul to remain faithful in witness and mission? And what will motivate us effectively in order to remain faithful in our witness to God? Well, Paul's motivation for faithful witness and service rested in God's eternal reward such that he was willing to sacrifice not only personal pleasures of his freedoms, but personal provisions of his rights. You see, friends, God's eternal reward is immeasurably greater than all of our sacrificed freedoms or our sacrificed rights. Let me explain to you a little bit about the Christian reward. Here's what the Christian reward is according to Scripture. It is the difference between the exercise of our gifts and the claims of our freedoms against the compensations or the return that we have received and the indulgence and the enjoyments with which we've given ourselves to. And where these two do not equal one another, that is where we are rewarded. That is where we have invested in eternity instead of demanding temporary payment. You see, as a Christian minister, as one who actually makes my living by preaching and by the Christian ministry, this sits heavy upon me because I get paid to do what I do. The question is, do I get paid to do everything I do? Or is there anything that I can't not do, whether I get paid or not? That's the lingering resonation in my heart and in my mind. And the question for each of us today that we have to consider whether in vocational ministry or not is simply do we do what we do because of who Christ is or because of what it can do for us? In other words, do we serve Christ with our life because He is worthy or because what He gives is good to us? That's the challenge of the Christian reward. And what Paul is saying is that Christians entrust their lives to God for His eternal glory. You see, the reward of God's eternal glory is the Christian's defining motivation. Our defining motivation, even though we don't know what this reward is, even though we don't always know how much it is, and even though we don't really know anything else about God's reward except that the reward God promises to us is always in accordance to His nature and His character and who He is. He is the giver and His gift is in accordance to His being. 
And so with that in mind, Paul commends us that his reward, regardless of the fact that we don't know what it is, regardless of the fact we don't know how much it is or when it will come or how it will come. I mean, to be quite honest, when you think about how risky that sounds, it's really no wonder that so many people use Christianity for all their personal pleasure and and sometimes provision and anything they can get out of it now because the future is just too unknown and surely would we want to risk all of our eternity on it but Paul says yes the reward is worthy of the sacrifice that God is good for the risk because when the reward comes in accordance to his character and his nature it will be more glorious than imaginable that's what he tells us it will be more good than is conceivable more generous than is containable and more lavished than could have ever been deserved Why does God give his reward this way? Because that's who God is. He's good. He's generous. He's glorious. And he lavishes his gifts upon his children. He does not withhold. And so the Christian reward means that more than what we get from God, that more importantly, we we get God. That, that God doesn't just give us stuff or things, but He brings us into His presence to make us children of the Most High. Hear me, friends. The origin, the creator, and the sustainer of all things brings us into a personal relationship with Him. That is the Christian's reward. There is no comparison. There is nothing that stands beside or comes before. Hear me, friends. God's reward is far greater than any of our freedoms enjoyed or our rights exercised. Paul is not trying to condemn someone for enjoying the freedoms that they have in Christ. He's just saying, don't take the good things that God's given you and make them God. Paul is not condemning anyone for receiving rightful compensation for their work, specifically in serving the gospel. He's just saying, if that's the only reason you do it, you're not receiving any reward from that. What he is saying is that in both of these things, that God's reward is far greater than any indulgence or any experience that these could bring to us. You see, the greatness of God's reward is the Christian's motivation. I told you it was risky, right? And that's what we see throughout Scripture. God's reward... Was the motivation for Daniel to say no to the king's riches and the king's fare so that he could say yes to the lion's den? Risky. God's reward was the motivation for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, also in the book of Daniel, to say no to bowing down to the king so they could say yes to what? The fiery furnace. God's reward was Peter's no to being crucified right side up 
and in some way being thought that he would imitate the Lord Jesus and saying yes to crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy of dying in the same way our Lord died. God's reward was why Paul in Romans 8 could say that, that, that no tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword will not destroy us, for we will be overcomers. So he could say this, that I am sure that nothing will separate us from the love of God. God's reward said to Job, That he could say no to the world's offerings, specifically Satan himself. A man naked, covered in oozing sores, having lost his family, his children, his wife, all of his money, all of his possessions, everything that represents something in the world was stripped and unrightfully taken away from Job. And here is what Job said. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, I will stand. That all the promise that the world offered this man to be relieved of his pain, to be relieved of his heartache, to be supplied for what he no longer had in provisions were not significant enough for him to say no to God, but him to say no to the immediate rewards of this life so he could say yes to the one in which he knew he would stand in the end for all eternity. God's reward is the greatest motivation for the Christian life. It is the only motivation that will sustain you where God calls you and leads you. But if you're finding your fulfillment and just the things that this life can offer to you, know this, they will fall short as you strive for more in your life. Motivation for the Christian who wants to live faithful, even when it demands sacrifice of pleasured freedoms or earthly provisions, always means compounding glory because God gives his reward to his people. Friends, can I ask you a question to help us apply this? Are you saying yes to anything in your life that's causing you or allowing you to say no to God? Do you have your yes and your no reversed? Are you saying yes to maybe even good things? It's interesting. Paul's not talking about things that we might identify necessarily as sinfulness and indulgence in that means. He's talking about good things and good things that God has given to us, but good things that we're holding on to like they're God Himself instead of. Releasing them to follow God. Are you saying yes to anything in your life? Hey God, I do enough for you. I show up most Sundays. I, I, I serve. I, I do some, uh, some this or that. You see friends, here's, here's the thing. Between our exercise of our freedoms and our rights. And our indulgence and enjoyment and compensation. The distance between those where our reward is found looks more often like this. Where we're making no eternal investment 
for the growth of our spiritual life and the growth of God's glory in our heart rather than saying, God, I I want that to look like this. To live for you. Dare you ask yourself, what is my reward for the way I'm living today? Are you living a fully compensated Christian life or are you investing in eternity for God's greater reward not consumed with every ounce of energy that I give should bring at least an ounce of supply returned rather I expend my life for the sake of Christ and I'll let him worry about the accounting of it in the end You see, God's reward is so much greater. It's why Christians always give our first and our all and never our last, our least, our little, or our lousy. Or when we do, we begin to wonder, why is God not paying off the way He promised? Because we're expecting a reward that is lesser than God and not what He desires for us in the greater, grander more glorious of what He wants to give us. This is also why you can expend your life as a faithful witness for God and you will never outgive Him with your life. He will bless you. He will provide for you. You will see provisions and ways that God is working in your heart and in your life that you cannot imagine. But you will never get there until you release your own accounting and return and trust what God wants to do in your life. The first facet that we see here is the motivation for a faithful witness. The second facet we see is in verses 19 through 23. It's the manner of faithful witness. Look at verse 19 with me. Paul says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. You see, Paul had no hesitations about his confidence in his Christian liberties. This isn't a fact where Paul just didn't quite trust his Christian liberty. He wasn't still suspect of God. Rather, he had thrown off his hindrances and his liberty were not his primary motivations. In other words, what God could do for him was not the primary motivation that he served God from, but rather what God was for him. Not just what God gave to him. And here's the manner in which he approached his faithful witness. He uses a metaphor to explain it. And he says this, To the Jew, I became like a Jew, that I might win some. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I was not under the law, rather the law of Christ, that I might win those under the law. To the weak, I became like the weak, That I might win those who were weak. That I might encourage them. That I might strengthen them. That I might build them up as we saw last week. And his point is this. I wanted to connect with them. I wanted to engage with them. To meet them where they were. But to show them all that God held for them that was greater than this world. You see, Paul's manner for accomplishing mission meant doing whatever he had to do at great sacrifice to self, but never in sinfulness to God's commands in order to win people to Christ through the gospel. So what did he do by serving mission in this manner? Well, he gives us a principle. For though I am free from all, I make myself a servant 
to all that I might win more of them. Paul allowed no personal preference, no personal pleasure, and not even personal provision to hinder his service for gospel mission. There was no sacrifice that Paul was not willing and ready to make to serve God's mission. You see, friends, living for God's eternal reward means that we understand this defining principle in the way we live our life. That free completely means servant intentionally. God has set us free to serve his kingdom. Even as Jesus says, for take my yoke upon you, for it is light, it is full of joy, it is not heavy and burdensome. And so the missional manner of I have become all things to all people that by all means I might have some has far more to do with a Christian sacrifice of their freedoms and their rights than a greater indulgence in them. After all, if our life as Christians is to display the gospel in the fullest manner possible, then it would mean we would lay down our lives completely as our Lord and Savior himself did for us. God doesn't ask us to do all that we can do to produce greater results for him. For God can only work fully for his glory through the Christian who surrenders completely. And the question is, in the manner in which you are living your life, Christian, are you completely surrendered? Or are you holding on even to some things that are good, even some things that God's given you, when God's wanting to lead you along, when He's wanting to lead you to a new place, in a new ministry, in a new way of service, and you're going, God, I got this. You be happy with this, and we won't deal with that. Is that the manner? The life that is completely surrendered says free completely, servant intentionally. The third facet that we see in verses 24 to 27, Paul talks about the measure for a faithful witness. Not only do we see the motivation of God's great reward, not only do we see the manner that free completely means servant intentionally, but finally we see the measure for faithful witness. He says this, do you not know That in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Well, sure, sure they know that, right? I mean, we all know that, right? So he says this, so run that you may obtain it. Run that you may obtain it. This is the measure for faithful witness. Paul's standard for personal faithfulness principally revolved around how he approached the mission, that you would run, that you might obtain this reward. You see, his point is this, how you run the race matters in the measure of faithfulness. Don't push the illustration too far, the analogy to its end. Say, well, I can't run and I don't win all the races, therefore I don't run that. Listen, even those who don't always win, run so that they can win, right? Sure they do, even though they don't always win. You see, Christians who perform perfectly outwardly, but remain with an absence of joy and love within, they only perform because they want others to see them. 
It's like Jesus in the New Testament when he was in the service and the widow who had two mites to her name. That's what he said. You know what two mites is equal to? About one-eighteenth of one cent in our economy today. Meaningless, useless. Those coins were so light that no matter what height she dropped them from, they were not going to make any measure of clank when they hit the metal plate. And Jesus said, she's blessed. She gave all she had. Compared to the Pharisees, who could have given in bills, but they went to the bank on the day before so they could have their bills turned into coins so that when it hit the plate, it would ding and dent the plate and everybody would know how much they gave. Jesus said they've already received their reward. The hearing of the ears. Jesus said don't pray like the Pharisees who pray in public. They raise their voice and they talk Real honorably when they pray. Because it impresses people. But when people hear them pray, in that moment, they've been compensated. They've been rewarded fully for their act of righteousness. What did he say? Rather, go to your closet. Don't worry about talking to God in right words or in the right tone. Just open your heart and pour it out before him. And keep it open as He pours Himself into you. There is a difference in how we run, whether we run to win the prize or whether we just run to be seen circling the track. And that's the way Christians live. And Paul says this, the difference is self-control. The difference is self-discipline. You see, Christians live with intentionality to demonstrate with their life what they believe about God and what they believe about His great reward for their life. And self-control distinguishes between those who really want to live for God and those who just want to live for self. There's three main purposes that it forms in our life uh, with God. First of all, self-control places a higher trust in God's commands and God's provisions than in our personal ability. Ability. Sorry, I misspelled that in the way I pronounced it, didn't I? Self-control, first of all, places a higher value in what God wants to provide for us than what we can provide for ourselves. Let me tell you how we see this. In the next verse, he says this, every athlete exercises. That word for exercise is literally a word that means agony or agonizes. Listen, when the race day comes, that's not the first time that the athlete has tried to run. Rather, self-control has put him into a life of running every day to subject himself to the same agony that he's going to experience when game time comes, when the gun goes off and it's time for the race to begin. Why? Because that's how he will be best prepared to run in such a way to win. And Paul is saying that's how Christians live. There is an agonizing in our life that we willingly subject ourselves to, whether times are hard or not, whether our situation is distressed or not. We control our lives willingly making sacrifices to God because we know that He is a greater glory and we do not want to lose hope in Him just because the situation gets hard. Some of you are old enough to remember, though you may not, Acknowledge it publicly. That's CBS, Wide World of Sports. Remember this? 
the agony of defeat. What do you see? You see that ignoramus come flying down the, the hill, right? And he goes, I don't know if he's lost control or what, but he looks like me on skis, man. I mean, like, ah, and every limb is in every direction. And he flies over the rooftop and just begins to go end over end. And he goes, ooh, can I see that again? I mean, it's just, it's brutal. It's agonizing. And Paul says this, you exercise self-control because, you know, living the Christian life is not a cakewalk. That it is going to be hard. There are going to be trials. There are going to be tests that come against you. But self-control prepares you to run regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the situation, to live your life in a way to win the prize. It's how you approach your life. And it recognizes that the race that we run will be hard. But we exercise self-control in order to live out of God's provision for our life and not just our abilities. Self-control also trains us to receive the reward that will be given. You see, the measure of the reward determines the intensity of training, right? I, I would dare say a junior high track team does not train the same way that the Olympic track team trains. Why? Well, I mean, it's just not worth the same reward, you know. They, they may both get something that looks similar. And, and you need to excel where you are. But the fact of the matter is, these people live and breathe it every day and take it down to the nth discipline of their life. And what Paul is saying is that God's reward is great and grand. He's already put that out for us. But this is what we train for and we control ourselves. He says, I beat my body to keep it under control. Why? Because the reward that I will receive from God is worthy of the control that I exert on my own life. And I do not want to be disqualified. That's the third value of self-control is that self-control is valued because it means we remain faithful. And friends, I'm going to tell you, that's hard, isn't it? When temptations come, when, when you can give an ounce of energy for God, however that's measured out, but He's calling for a pound. God, I'll do this for you, but I don't want to do that. I don't think I can do that, but I know I can do this. And God says, that's the point. It doesn't require any faith of you to do this. But if you're going to do that, you're going to have to trust me and what I want to do in you. And that's what Paul is saying. That where you are with God today is not where God wants to lead you, or leave you, excuse me. But it's the starting point from where He wants to lead you. From there, into a closer, more intimate relation, more faithful witness with who He is. And you see, today as we conclude, the fact of the matter is, some of you are using your faithfulness to what God gave you in the past, to demand greater provision from Him for your life today in the present. You don't want to take another step to God, but you're expecting that He'll pour more blessings into you. Listen, friends, you can't live off yesterday's blessing. Why? Because God's got a new mercy for you today. And you're going to have to trust Him today. You can't keep living off of yesterday's successes and expect that His new mercies for you today will be as equally pleasing. You've got to let go. And you've got to trust that what he wants to give to you is greater than what you've already received from him. You say, how do I know? Do I just throw everything off? 
No, no, no. See, here's the faithfulness of God. He will show you. He will tell you. He will bring you to the place so that you understand, so that you comprehend. There will be no question in your mind or heart about what God wants to do if you'll just say yes to Him. Yes to Jesus. But that will begin with a no to many of the things you're already holding to, that you're already being offered. Will you do that today? Let me pray. Father, this world has a way of tricking us. Tricking us to believe that even the things that you did for us yesterday or gave to us yesterday will be greater than what you want to give us today or where you want to lead us tomorrow. And Lord, even a simple step of faith to where we surrender our lives to receive our eternal life in you can seem like such a giant leap. But when we take that, we know that you're always faithful to reward us with that which is so much greater than we could have ever dreamed or imagined. That's what your word promises. And when you give us stuff that's less than what we dreamed and less than what we imagined, you don't do that, God. Then after we've been following you for a while, it seems like we want to hit the pause button. Just operate on cruise control. But there are people who are dying to know you. There are people who have never heard the name of Jesus and don't know that he loves them. There are people who've bought into the lie that the evil one has perpetrated in the world that says God hates people. But we live in the full knowledge that you love people. And God, let us never hold on to things, even the things that you gave us yesterday that were good, in some way to say no to what you want us to take hold of today. But rather to live with open hands and with open hearts. That our lives can be poured into by your goodness and your grace. That we might be lives that are expended to tell the world about your great goodness. God, I don't know how you're leading each and every person today, but I do know this. It'll always be to trust you in a way that sometimes we question whether we can. We don't know if if we should take that risk. It'll always be to say no to a lesser good so we can take hold of a greater glory. So God, I pray for the grace right now that wherever a person is, whether it's a Christian who knows what it means to walk with you but is struggling with a situation or a circumstance or or wrestling with a decision, or even if it's a person today who's never come to the point where they've repented of their sins and placed their faith in you, and today they sense that you're speaking to them and they're not sure all that that means, but they want to know more about this God who loves them. They want to know more about this Jesus. I pray that in the next few moments, even the remainder of the day, that by your Spirit, you would reveal yourself to them in such a powerful, potent, personal way that they'd say no to whatever they had to say no to. 
so they can make a singular yes to Jesus.